We are continuing this morning in our study of the book of James, James 1, 5 through 8 is where we are today. Last week, we looked at uh, probably one of the more popular passages in the book of James, verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1. It's a section that a lot of us memorize uh, in, our, in our very first Christian trial. We go right there and memorize it. But we looked at the command of God through James to, to, to count or to consider, or like we talked about last week, to calculate our trials to be joy. Not because, again, not because they're actually good and not bad, but because they are necessary for us to grow in what should be the primary goal in the life of every Christian, to grow in our sanctification, to grow in our Christ-likeness. We talked about how trials are inevitable, so it's, it's useless to try and live your life with the goal of avoiding trials because God has promised that they are coming. And we also talked about how they come at unexpected times and how they come from every area of your life. And the reason that they are good is because it's a testing of our faith. They help us to see that our faith is genuine. So we, we, we pass the test when our trials don't cause us to lose our faith and turn away, and instead cause us to cling closer to Christ. So if or when trials come, they cause us to cling or to turn to God even more, to dig down deep into our biblical foundation and to live faithfully through them, then it shows that we are not of that second soil in Jesus's parable. The, the soil of the rocky path. We are, we are told uh, in that parable that the soil immediately receives the word with joy, but they have no root in themselves, and they endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So we see that parable in Mark 4. We see that a quick reception of the word that's good, but it could just mean you're this soil, and trials are one of those things that helps us to know that we are not. So trials help us to see that that second soil, that's not us. So we gain confidence as we come to recognize that our faith passes the test in these situations, that we don't fall away but draw closer, but it also tests our faith, and this is more what we talked about last week, in the way that a test makes us stronger like heat and fire, like that biblical metaphor, heat and fire burning the dross off of the metal to continue to make that piece of metal more pure. That's the heat and fire of trials. That's what they do for us. As we live obediently and faithfully through the midst of our trials, we see more clearly and in a greater way the wonderful character of the God who has bought us. We see better and more gloriously the truths of the gospel that he has saved us through. And as a result, we become more and more like Christ. And the things of this world that can hold so powerful an attachment on us become less and less important to us. And we're able to sing like the words of that wonderful song, A Mighty Fortress. We are able to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. So we become, those things become less and less important to us, and our gaze moves more and more away from this physical life and becomes more fixed on eternity and living this life now for the next one. 
The teaching of Scripture is pretty clear on the understanding of trials. We referenced, we referenced a few other places in the New Testament where we see this same or a similar type of understanding of how we are to view trials and why the experience of those trials should cause us joy. We saw that in letters from Paul, and we saw that in a letter from Peter, and, in, and even in the teaching of Jesus himself. But even though... This is the frequent and consistent teaching of the Scripture that doesn't make it undifficult. As we all know, that it goes completely against our nature to act like that. When we are in any type of trial, whether it be physical, whether emotional, spiritual, any type of trial, a combination of all of those, Everything in us is, is telling us to take whatever action is necessary as soon as possible to get out. That, that, that's, what, that's what we feel. And the message of these passages, it certainly isn't. Trials are so good that you should actually try and stay in them. So if you lose your job, you don't decide, well, this is a trial. Trials are good. I guess I'll stay unemployed. That's not the message. No, the idea is that as you are working through the trial, your focus isn't on the trial, your focus isn't on getting out of the trial or on the circumstances around it, but instead your focus is on God. And what does faithfulness to God look like in this situation? What is He teaching me? And how can I glorify Him in this? That's what our focus is on. And because this is just so far from our natural reaction, this isn't usually just a switch that can be flipped on when we realize that this is what we've been commanded. I'm sure maybe a couple of you, but I'm sure most of you went home last week and were like, oh, that's good to know that's commanded. Now I'm going to change my life. Trials are joy. And that's it. That's the last time I need to think about that. That's not what happens. (laughs) In fact, maybe you're like me, and you had the opportunity to apply last week's sermon to your own life last week, and you noticed that you didn't respond that great. Last Sunday night, so I just spent the weekend studying James 1, 2 through 4 more intensely than at any other time in my life, and then we went and visited a home group, and we had this great discussion about all of these principles with some of my brothers and sisters in Christ, and it was just so wonderful. So, so this is the context for last Sunday night. I don't think it would be possible for me to have this truth in my head any better than I did last Sunday. And yet... When we got home from home group, we discovered that our youngest son, who had never really expressed much of an interest in the bathroom sink, found a pretty creative way to flood the bathroom with it. And I'll just tell you that it took me a while, maybe not as long as it usually would have, but a while to start thinking of the situation the way I had just taught on. And that trial isn't even like a lot of the much more difficult trials I know a lot of you are going through. I mean, and we just sung a song about ancient words ever true, martyr's blood stains each page, those type of trials. So so when you hear the biblical expectations and commands for the Christian going through a trial, it, it is easy to be, all right, I heard it, I can be so motivated to do it, this is what God wants of me, this is how it's going to be, and then the trial hits, and you really see 
yeah, it makes total logical sense what it's been taught on. And of course, if I really understand God for who he is and the gospel correctly, trials shouldn't have that same effect on me. But, but then you get home, you get outside of the church, you get back into your life and you find once again, oh, this is still a difficult command. And so now I'm right there with you. But praise God for his continued kindness to us. Because not only does he readjust our thinking on trials and graciously gives us these good and holy commands that when obeyed will make us more like the one that we long to be like, not only does he do that, but he also offers us help for obeying the command. And that is what we're going to look at in verses 5 through 8 of James 1 this morning. But what I want to do as we read is I want to read, again, the whole first chapter, because, again, that really is kind of an introduction, and most commentators see it as a, a kind of the, the whole chapter is almost in the context of trial. So let's read chapter 1 of James together once again. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls Its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he he was like. 
but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So I wanted to read all of that so that we can see this particular section that we are looking at today is most directly in reference to helping a believer as they deal with trials. While the instructions and principles in all of these verses that we're going to look at today and then also throughout all of chapter 1, they don't necessarily have to apply to times of trial. Like if you're not going through a trial, you're not, you can't just push those to the side. You can look to them and be obedient and learn how to behave righteously from these, from these verses, whether you are in a trial or not. But the context and the grammar indicates that James is thinking about these verses in the context of living obediently in trials. So, last week we talked a little bit about how James uses linking words to tie one section to another section, and you see that again right here at the beginning of the verse. You can see that in your English translations. That last word in the Greek text in in verse 4 is the, that word translated as lacking or lax? That is a form of the word lepo. And, we see, uh, and so we see that in the end of verse 4. And then we also see it right there at the beginning of verse 5. James is using the linking words like he did in the, the first section to link these two sections together grammatically. But also, as we read that whole section from verse 1 on, really all the way through the end of the chapter together, you can clearly see that dealing righteously with trials really is, you can see how it's the theme of the whole section. If you were just to roughly look at it really quickly, which you can do maybe at home, look through the first chapter, you see a lot of repeating themes, and you see really clearly, you can see how it all makes so much sense in the context of trials. Now, the section we are looking at today is to help us in our trials. So the result of steadfastness and spiritual maturity will be the result of our trials, like we talked about last week. So what we're doing is we're we're looking at how is it, how does God, in light of what we heard last week, in light of what we see in verses 2 through 4, how does God help us to make our trials produce in us that which we saw in verses 2 through 4, spiritual maturity. And that brings us to our outline for today, four points in the outline today. Number one, the need. Number two, the source. Number three, the request. Number four, the substance. So point number one, the need. The need. So if you are thinking about verse 5, coming right after our section from last week, we get the understanding that one major reason that we waste so many of our trials, or we just end up making a mess of them, and and, and we increase in sin instead of in sanctification, the reason they don't produce in us what they should produce in us is because we lack wisdom. It's because we lack wisdom. The implication in verse 5 
by saying if, is if you lack wisdom, you need it. It's not something that you can just do with or without. If you don't have it, you must attain it. And the way that you realize that you don't have it in the midst of a trial is when you don't see the trial producing steadfastness in you. You don't see spiritual maturity resulting out of you. If that's not what you're seeing in your trials, then you need wisdom. The idea from the text is that at the end of verse 4, we're told that trials are supposed to produce steadfastness, and then we're commanded to let the steadfastness work in us in the midst of the trial so that we can become spiritually mature. Again, like we talked about last week. So in verse 5, James immediately connects that which you might be lacking to wisdom. In order to be successful in the obedience to verses 2 through 4, you need wisdom. Wisdom from God. In order for trials to result in spiritual maturity, the thing that you need more than anything else, so if you struggled with last week, the thing that you need more than anything else is wisdom. And it's God's wisdom. We see in this verse, then, the kindness of God. Because the command in the previous passage is a difficult one, and God loves us in our weakness. He strengthens us in our weakness, knowing that it is the good intention of God when He commands us that which is most difficult. It is God's intention. It's His kind purpose that that command will not drive us to sin, but drive us to our knees. It is good for us to recognize our weakness and the difficulty in obedience so long as it causes us to pray for it and not to just be like, well, I can't do that. That's not rightly recognizing your weakness. Rightly recognizing it leads to the right response of prayer. So what we need is wisdom. More specifically, what we need is to pray for wisdom. When we are thinking of wisdom, we don't just mean, by the way, some sort of kind of cerebral concept, some sort of thinking. James isn't talking about wisdom like, like a bunch of Greek philosophers just sitting around thinking and conjecturing about you know, the problems and the mysteries of life. That, that's not biblical wisdom. Biblical wisdom is practical. Biblical wisdom is, is knowing what needs to be done and then knowing it so well you do it. Wisdom is a common theme in James. It'll come up often as we are studying this together. But you can see that this is James's understanding of what wisdom is. Just a couple of chapters later, if you just flip over, look at chapter 3, verse 13. Look what James says there. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? All right, so who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So you, you can see the connection between wisdom and works, wisdom and conduct. And that is in keeping with the biblical understanding of wisdom, even throughout the Old Testament. James isn't introducing a brand new concept to Christians. In Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 6, 4 verses 5 and 6, we read, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, and as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. 
Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear of all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So, keep them and do them, that will be your wisdom. That's the evidence, the commands and the obedience to the commands. And since so much of James reflects back upon the teaching of Jesus, it's also good for us to remember Jesus' simple statement that is, that is familiar to us, that is similar to this one from Luke 7 and Matthew 19, where Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her deeds or by her children. So you see the similar idea there that true wisdom is exemplified through works, through deeds, through obedient, righteous living. That's how you see wisdom. So you do not become wise simply by reading books and memorizing portions of Scripture that can give you kind of a correct knowledge. You can know what is right and wrong, what you are supposed to do, but if you haven't been so convinced by the truth of it that you begin to put it into practice, then you don't have wisdom. One commentator who is quoted in several commentaries, so I think this is helpful for us, defines wisdom in the book of James quite helpfully like this. The endowment of a changed heart and mind which is needed for the righteous conduct of life. The endowment of a changed heart and mind which is needed for the righteous conduct of life. That's a good idea of what James is thinking about when he's talking about wisdom. That's a good way to think of it. Something that you receive, it's a change of heart and a change of mind, a change of your heart and mind that you need and you need it in order to live righteously. So, specific to this case then, when we see our trials leading to anxiety or our trials leading to worry, or bitterness, or frustration, or outbursts of anger. When we see that coming from our trials, in spite of the fact that we know that we are supposed to consider them to be joy, then what we need is wisdom. We need that knowledge to be transformed into something that we are so convicted about, so convinced of in our heart, that our actions change. If we lack wisdom, our trials will never produce in us the good that God has designed them for. And it makes sense that if our trials are producing sin in us instead of steadfastness, then it must mean that we're lacking wisdom. Think of one of the most famous verses on wisdom in the Bible, Proverbs 9.10, begins, the fear of the Lord is what is, is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. So when sin comes out of us in our trials, we are lacking even the beginning of wisdom. Because at the base of every sin that we ever commit is a lack of fear of the Lord. If you are rightly fearing the Lord in any given moment, then you will not sin in that moment. You will not rebel against this Lord that you fear rightly. So what we need in order to be obedient to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 is wisdom, the wisdom from above. We need the command, and then we need the wisdom to act on it. 
The fool looks at the command to count it all joy whenever you face trials of various kinds and says something like, well, yeah, I know that, that that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. You know, I've, I've read that in the Bible. I've heard that before. I believe that it's true, but no one ever really gets that down. I'm not ever going to really get that down. And that's like a super Christian martyr type of person. They got that down. The fool talks like that. But the Christian says, Lord, I believe, but not, but apparently not fully. Lord, help my unbelief. Lord, your commands are good and they are for my good and I want to be steadfast. I want to be mature. I want to be like Jesus more than anything else in this life. So please give me the wisdom that I lack to joyfully obey and grow so that this trial can accomplish the good in me that you have promised that it would. He sees the need for this wisdom and he asks God because God is the source of all wisdom. So point two, point two, the source. And I realize that the answer to the point is rather simple. So of course it's God, you've already answered that. But in this point, we're going to discuss not just like that it's a mystery that God is the source of wisdom. I'm, I'm going to assume you know that and not try and convince you of that. But what we're going to do is talk about the character of this God who is the source of wisdom. And hopefully in so doing, it will encourage us and spur us on to regularly and joyfully going to the source of wisdom for the wisdom that we need. So look again at verse 5. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Most commentators agree that James, once again, has the teaching of Jesus in mind as he writes this command, the teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, the the famous ask, seek, and knock passage. And that makes sense because James is appealing to the character of God, that's what he's doing here, as the basis of our confidence in answer to prayer. That's what Jesus does in Matthew 7. Listen to what the passage from Matthew 7 says. Matthew 7, 7 through 11 says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. For which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, listen, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So Jesus also bases the promise of answered prayer is based on the character of God as the good Father. And in our translations, it kind of it's it's difficult uh, for our translations to handle this one. It, it kind of looks like we're talking about God responding to our prayers, but the phrase should literally read more like something like in, in, instead of "Let him ask God who gives generously," let him ask the giving God. The idea that is supposed to be conveyed here is not so much that God gives in response to our prayers, but that God is always giving, that 
God's nature is a giving nature, that his character is a giving character. Look at verse 17. Just look down a little bit in James 1, verse 17. Look what it says there. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So you can kind of see that there in verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift, the picture there is just it's just gifts kind of coming down from heaven almost like rain. Our prayers are not to be seen like putting money into a vending machine, and then when you've put enough money and you press a button and you get what you asked for. That's not what our prayers are like. Rather, it is like being placed, our prayers placing us into the constantly flowing stream of giving that is the character of God. God is always giving. That is what is always flowing out of him, flowing from him. We are constantly in the process all the time. Right now, the gifts of God are raining down on you. We just kind of take it for granted. We're constantly in the process of receiving gifts from God. In fact, when you think about it, when you actually think about it, our trials are really nothing more than what we perceive to be as a temporary interruption in the continuous giving from God that we've always received in a certain way. We've just gotten used to God giving us this every moment of our life for so long, and now it's not there anymore, or it's changed, and now we're not receiving that gift anymore, or at least we're not receiving it in the same way, or receiving a different gift in its place. That's what, that's what trials are. God has kindly given you health and breath in a certain regular way for your entire life, and then when he chooses to, to withhold that gift from you, the gift of health, or give it to you maybe differently, well, it feels like you've lost something and now you're in a trial. God has kindly given you that employment that you've had for now that you're used to for every day, forever long, and he has used it to provide for your family. And now he stopped giving that gift of employment to you. And he intends to give and provide you for you to give and provide for your family in a different way. But since it's different, since it's different, now it feels like a trial. God has given you that wonderful, maybe companionship from a loved one. It, and it truly is that that companionship is a gift that we never deserved, that he didn't owe to us. But he kindly put it in our life for however long he did. It was his kindness. It was for our good. And now you no longer receive that gift. He stopped giving you that relationship either through death or some other circumstances. And now it's a trial. In all of these situations, the giving God is continually pouring upon your life in so many other ways, so many gifts. But the change in circumstances, the loss of a particular blessing that we have gotten used to has kind of interrupted it. Maybe it's now, it's now been replaced with what we've just seen as the gift of, of suffering, which is a gift that is still meant to turn us to him. So some gifts cause us to respond in thankfulness to him, as they should, and some gifts cause us to respond to him in desperation, and we need him, as they should. Both of them, the intention is to turn us to God. 
The ultimate reason that God has given you any of those gifts was for your ultimate growth and for his glory. And the reason that he takes them away and gives you new ones is for the same reason. So James calls us to recognize the character of our giving God and now to go to him and ask him for the gift of wisdom now in the midst of this trial. And within this giving nature of God, we see, we see three subpoints right there in verse 5 related to his giving that should encourage us even more to ask him for wisdom. So, so they're easy to see right there in the text. Subpoint A, he gives generously. He gives generously. So we, we do know from what we just talked about that God is generous and that God does give bountifully. He's, he's always giving to overflowing without reservation, without holding back. But the word for generously here is not the same word that could be translated as bountifully or, or more than necessary, like the idea found in places like uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, where we see whoever sows generously or bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's not like that word. It's, not, it's a different word. And in the instructions to Timothy about the rich in 1 Timothy 1.18, where Paul tells Timothy that the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. This is a different word. The word here is the Greek word haplus. And it's a much less common word. It's used actually only, only here in this form in the New Testament. And it can have the meaning of, it can have the meaning of wholeheartedly and without reserve. And some lexicons carry that forward. But most lexicons seem to prefer something more along the lines of simply. This word for generously meaning simply or, or single-mindedly. So a, it's, a, it's a simple giving or a undivided, single-minded giving. And it makes so much sense that James would use that word because he's, he's contrasting the double-mindedness of these hearers. He's, con- he's, he's wanting to confront the double-mindedness that, that we can tend to have. So simple giving, undivided giving, a single-minded giving. The other place that a form of this word is used is in Matthew 6.22, its counterpart, Luke 34, where Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. That it's actually that word for healthy there. You don't see it automatically. That word for healthy there is also translated as clear or as single-eyed or single-focused. It's that same word that we see, it's haplos. And, and here it is referring to something along the lines of being, of being singularly focused. So, how is that better than the normal understanding of generous? Well, again, this, word, this understanding of the word fits better into the context of talking about giving as part of the nature or character of God and in contrast to our double-mindedness. So in this context in James, it means something similar to simply or in an undivided way. 
So it fits better with what James has been saying and is going to say in the rest of the letter. It is in contrast to the way that we give. He's setting God's giving apart from the way that we give. Really in in contrast to, to what we see in the rich that are warned throughout this book. Again, there's a double-mindedness that mars our giving that does not exist in God. And, and you know that's true. The concept is that God just simply gives. There's no strings attached, ever. He simply gives. He's not keeping record of what he has given. Uh, he's, he's not like we are with our, with like our kids on Christmas where we're trying to, how much have we spent on this one and this one? And they, like we're trying to figure out, trying, we're trying to make it equal. And, and, we're, and it, our giving is contaminated with that type of thinking. That does not exist in God. God is just giving. He's not trying to make it equal for all of us. He gives according to what is best for each of us. And unlike us, He expects and cares nothing for us returning something to Him. God's constant giving to His children never make them debtors to Him. He gives unconditionally without all of the flaws that taint the giving done between humans. How we constantly keep tabs on things in our head. So what did they give us at the baby shower? All right, well, we've got to spend at least that much on it. Like, th- like, that's how we think. What did they give our daughter? Oh, man, we can't. Let's see if we can find a sale and make it look like, you know, th- that type of thinking. That's how we think in our giving. So, so he, God j- is simply giving. He doesn't second-guess gifts like we do because we don't know, well, m- maybe is this, is this going to communicate what I want it to? Is it going to com- over-communicate? Is it going to under-communicate? Thinking like this. How we give, hoping that it will be appreciated, hoping that it will be useful or helpful. Is it too much? Is it too little? None of that is in God. He gives simply as a perfect father, knowing exactly what is best for us and knowing it is exactly what we need. It it doesn't matter what we think of it because his thought of it is perfect. As a perfect God, there is nothing that he needs from our response. We can't add to him by giving back a response. So there is no possible way he could give in order to get something back because he needs nothing. He gives with perfect knowledge, knowing that it is only a deficiency on our part that would make us ungrateful for what he gives. Indeed, I mean, think about this. If we knew exactly what God knows, we would always pray for God to give us exactly what he gives us Every single minute. That's how we would pray. And God just simply gives in a way that we can't even fully comprehend. So God gives generously or simply or single mindedly. He does that in sub point B. Sub point B, He gives to all. So, just really quickly on this one, even though it is true that God gives to all people in a generous and a simple way. Even the atheist who scoffs God in his word does it with a mouth that was given to him through another breath that was given to him by formulating thoughts in a brain that was given to him. And even though that is true, the context here indicates that this is in reference to all who are asking for wisdom, to all 
believers. And so the point is, he gives generously to all believers, to all who ask him. It's not a a first-come, first-served basis. He is not going to run out of it. There isn't a limited amount of wisdom that he has to divvy up between us. So if you come to God truly believing, we'll talk about that more in a minute, but truly believing in the midst of your trial, and you see your desperate need for the wisdom from God so that the trial can have its perfecting work in you, then because he gives simply and expects nothing in return, and he also doesn't look at how you've handled all your past gifts to come, like, let's think about how he's done this. Do I want to give him another one? He doesn't do that to evaluate your worthiness of yet another gift. The condition of asker does not come into play at all so long as they ask with true faith. So God gives wisdom generously or simply. He gives to all who ask, and he gives, subpoint C, without reproach. He gives without reproach. And what does that mean? Well, it, it just points further to that understanding of, of hapless that we just talked about. It means he gives without criticizing or reviling or being disparaging. He's, again, he's not like us in our giving. He, he's never like, this guy again? I, like, this is like the 25th time today. He's not like that. He doesn't get sick of our asking, and he never grows tired of giving because it's his nature. He is the perfect father, the perfect father. And even as fathers, as as even good fathers, we can see our adorable kids, and they they, they come up to us, and they ask us to fix the same toy again and again and again. And as sweet as it is that it shows their dependence on us, Even the best father eventually starts to think of where they can hide that toy. (laughs) Like, where can I, like, before he wakes up, let's do something about this. Here's a truck. We'll put that in the place. Let's get rid of this thing. That is not God. That's not God. And think of this, whereas it would be a mark of immaturity for a kid to not come to his parents less and less as he grows older, It is actually a mark of immaturity in the Christian to not go to our God more and more as we grow older. Because as we grow, we increasingly recognize an even greater need and dependence on Him than we knew before. So it's supposed to look like God is not like the the boss who you're afraid to go to and ask the same question one more time because you think you're going to get on their nerves and get fired because you still haven't figured it out. Repeatedly going to God, even for the same thing, is a recognition that you have a true understanding of His character and of your dependence. And that's a good thing. God never tires of hearing our prayers, and He never tires of giving us good gifts. That's impossible because you can never weary infiniteness can't be wearied. He's unlike us. So what we need in order to grow in spiritual maturity in the midst of our trials is wisdom and and good news because the source of that wisdom is found in our giving God, 
who is a wellspring of giving and never tires of giving and gives to all who ask freely and without reviling. And that leads to point three, the request. Point three, the request. So we've talked about our response to the recognition of our need, and that is to pray. So again, not you've already got the primary answer here, to pray, to ask God. But the reason we have it as a separate point right here is because whereas we do see earlier that we are to ask or to pray, that we've already seen that, that's the, that's the command there. We see in these verses, actually verses 6 through 8, so the majority of our text today actually describes what that requesting is supposed to look like, what that prayer is supposed to look like. So, so we'll return to the end of verse 5 for our last point, but let's take a look at verses 6 through 8 because they describe what this prayer is, what it's supposed to look like. So just like we don't get to decide what righteousness looks like, just like we don't get to decide what obedience to God looks like, we don't get to do whatever we want and just say it's prayer. We see prayer here. Verses 6 through 8 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. So the test of true prayer is whether or not there is any real faith in it. This means that it isn't merely a matter of acknowledging that we, what we know to be true, but, but again, it's do we actually believe it? So Hebrews 11.6 says, as you know, without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So because no matter, because no matter what you might say you believe, when you go to God in prayer and you just do it because you think you should, or you do it because you want to check it off your list, and, and, but if you're honest, if someone pressed you, you don't actually think it's going to do anything. It's not, it's not actually going to. It might. There's always the chance. Like, like, like winning the lottery, maybe it'll work this time. Well, the end of that verse in Hebrews 11 implies that what is actually going on, if that's your attitude, is that you are not drawing near to God. In fact, you, are either, you either don't actually believe that He exists, that's one option, or you don't believe Him. You don't trust Him. You don't believe His character. You don't believe that he does what he says he will do and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So your faithless prayer is an indication of your either either practical atheism or that you don't actually believe the word of God. Double-minded is a good word for that. So we pray, we're to pray as those who really believe that God is everything that he says he is, and he will do all that he has promised to do. So if you go to him and ask for wisdom, then to do it while thinking that he may or may not give me that wisdom is to acknowledge this verse with your mouth, but doubt it in your heart. You're not believing that God is good to his word. And just think of how bad that is for us to actually think that way and not really think it's a big deal that we do it so much. If you told someone, if you told someone that you were going to fulfill a promise and that, it, and, and that your, your character depended on this promise, you can trust 
what I'm saying here on my character. And then in earshot of you, they turn to someone next to them and say, I'm not sure if he's going to do that or not, though. And how offended would you, a sinful human, be at that? And yet so many Christians treat God just like that with our prayers. Doubting is a demonstration that you don't actually see yourself as praying to the God of the Bible. Because this God has revealed himself to be one who is faithful to his promises and one who is faithful to the prayers of his saints. The Puritan Thomas Manton, in his commentary on this section of Scripture, he really sums up well how we impugn and disparage the character of God when we come to him in prayer while doubting. He says, The soul must actually magnify God's attributes in every prayer and distinctly urge them against the present doubt and fear. So urging the character of God against my present doubt. He says, usually we do not doubt for want of a clear promise, but out of low thoughts of God. Out of low thoughts of God, we cannot carry his love, power, and truth above the present temptation. And we can't believe that there is love enough to justify us from so many sins or power enough to deliver us from so great a death or danger and bounty enough to bestow so great a mercy. So do you see what he's saying there? In so many of our prayers, we slander him. We take his name in vain when we pray with doubt. In, in those prayers, we're praying to a God of our own making. It's a God of our own making when we pray to one who may or may not give us wisdom when we ask for it in the midst of a trial. So, when verse 7 says that this person should not suppose to receive anything from the Lord, it makes sense, right? Because they're speaking to some God that isn't faithful to his word. Not the one true Lord, not the God of Scripture. So they're not going to get anything from that God because he doesn't exist. It says he's like a wave driven and tossed by the wind with no real anchor, with no foundation in the promises of the one true God. Such a person will go through their entire life being drugged all over the place by their trials. Here James uses that, that word, that, that word double-minded, that again only appears in the letter of James, here and in another place, in James, literally meaning two-souled. The idea is that he has tried, this man, this double-minded man, has tried to plant one foot with God while keeping his other foot in the world or in trust in himself. And since those two planes move in opposite directions and they're opposed to each other, the result is an unstable man. The word translated as unstable here is used, again, only here in the New Testament, but it's used in other places, uh, including the Septuagint, uh, to, to represent the results of a violent storm. Everything's tossed everywhere. It carries the connotation of being one who is never able to be depended on because they are never able to firmly stand and move in a certain direction. Again, in James, you hear the echo of the teaching from Jesus in this term. Matthew 6, 24, Luke 16, 13. No one can serve two masters. He will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. 
So asking while doubting can refer to doubting the character of God, whether or not he will answer or cares to answer our prayer for wisdom, that he is faithful to do what he says he will do. So it's doubting like that. But we also doubt the character of God in our prayers when we pray for wisdom to grow through our trials, but we're not prepared to respond to this wisdom in submissive obedience to God. That is also doubting the character of God. When we pray with several options in our mind already for how we can see God answering the prayer, they're already in our head. Okay, I can see. I just need to, it's either this or this or this. I'm ready to do either, any of those. Just need the wisdom from God. But then we pray for wisdom. And if it's done with true faith and the character of God, it's a request that comes from a predisposed disposition toward obedience, no matter what form that might take, whether it's in one of those categories I've made or not. We ask God to grant us the wisdom that we need so that we are able to grow in spiritual maturity through our trial. And the only way that this is actually done in faith, in the true character of God, is if we truly believe that he is all wise and I am prone to error. Because if wisdom dictates a certain course of action and our response is, that's actually not what I meant. You know, I was willing to sacrifice this. I was selflessly and humbly ready to submit to, to this level of discomfort for your sake. For the sake of this trial. I'd already decided that I'd be willing to submit to this, but, but not this. Like, when that's how we are, that's double-minded. That's, that's another type of doubting God. Because we are preferring ourselves and our wisdom over his. No, we pray to him and we ask for help. We ask for wisdom, truly believing right things about God so we trust that his way is best even before we know what it is. Whatever, whatever it is, it's, it's best. When we decide that we need help in discipleship or, or go to biblical counseling, And we need an older brother or sister to help us understand what the Bible says about a certain situation that we're struggling in. We don't go into it with the mindset of, so I'm going to listen to what the Bible says about this decision I'm struggling with, or about this trial I'm going through, or about this sin I'm dealing with. I'm going to listen to what the Bible says about it, and then I'll decide what to do after I hear it. No. That is double-minded. That's me deciding in the end that I am still my final boss. That's no slave to God and the Lord Jesus Christ talking. No, we come into that situation already ready to submit to whatever we see that God has said because we know that no matter how hard it is, that's what's best because it's of God. And I can confidently trust Him with what I don't immediately understand. And so with that example in mind, that brings us to our concluding point, point four, the substance. So point three was the request and prayer, and we went through six through eight to kind of describe what is it that that prayer looks like. Point four is back there at the end of verse five where it says, and it will be given to him. So the request, the prayer that is made in the way that was described in 6 through 8, if you pray like that, 
This is a promise for you. And so in this point, I'm, I'm referring to how, all right, wisdom will be given to me. What does that look like? How do we receive what we've asked for? I'm not referring to what state we're in, like the reception of it and, and how I feel about it, but the actual tangible way in which this wisdom comes to us. So we're promised at the end of verse 5 that if we pray like a Christian, if we pray with a true faith that honors and trusts in the character of God, that those who do this, wisdom will be given to them. That is a promise. And you have, you have actually most likely seen this happen already in your life regularly, whether you know it or not, if you've been a Christian for a while. The problem that so many people have in recognizing it is that sometimes this is our problem. Even, even the most biblically sound of us will pray this prayer in faith, asking God for wisdom in the midst of our trial, and then kind of look up to heaven and, and ask, okay, I'm, I'm ready. Give me your wisdom. I'll, I will do whatever. Just I'm ready for it. Just whenever you're ready to give it to me. And we keep on praying and praying, and we forget that we're Reformed Baptists. We're not Gnostics. We're not waiting for God to reveal some secret personal message to me and only to me. We aren't charismatics waiting for some special vision or a dream from God that we, that, we, that we have to try and decipher and interpret. All right, wait, the wisdom is in this dream I had last night. I need to, need to figure it out. We're not waiting for a strong impression from the Lord to head in a certain direction, hoping that the, that, that, that strong impression, that strong feeling is from God and not from lunch. No, we have a book. We have the Bible. So often, for whatever reason, we pray and we act like God hasn't already spoken clearly and sufficiently in his word. That wisdom isn't abounding here. So often, for whatever reason, we just pray like that. Praying for wisdom is, is what it is, is praying that God will help us to understand how his perfect, inerrant, sufficient word how does it speak to this? How does it speak to this situation? It is a prayer to clearly understand the word of God and then to be so convinced and confident in its truth that you will boldly move in the direction that the wisdom of God points you in. So when you pray for wisdom, you are asking God to help you understand his word better. That's what you are doing. Believing and living out the word of God in your life is the definition of what wisdom looks like, like in a Christian. So God gives you wisdom through the teaching and proclamation of his word. This is the wisdom that leads to maturity. God's wisdom comes from God's word. If we go back to that earlier definition of wisdom being the, the endowment of a changed heart and mind which is needed for righteous conduct of life, then it merely means having our minds conformed to the truth of God's word and then confidently walking in the righteous conduct, the righteous conduct of life that is revealed to us in his word. Just, just think about the familiar words of that famous verse in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Say it in your head as I read it aloud. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The same goal as we've just seen that we have in our trials to be mature, to be complete. And here we see that that is also the intention of Scripture. How about that? God's intention for our trials and His intention for His Word is the same in us. The wisdom of God is the Word of God. So when we are in a trial, we need to, yes, we need to shift our mindset from focusing on what we get out of it to focusing on how God might grow us through it. That is what we talked about last week. And since that is such a hard mindset, such a difficult thing for us to naturally do, God has told us that if we will just just go to him in faith and ask for wisdom on how we are to do it, he will faithfully give us the wisdom we need. If what we truly desire most is to be like Christ and we really believe who God is and what he has said, then our prayers and our trials are going to turn from something like, God, please fix this whole situation for me. Or God, just just get me out of this. They're going to turn from that to, Lord, please show me what to do. Strengthen me to do it. Please give me your wisdom. And then we are certain to receive it. The, the answer to that prayer lies in this book in front of you on your lap. It's now just a matter of devoting yourself to understanding it. And thanks be to God, he has given us the rest of the body of Christ to help us in that. He has sovereignly placed the individuals in this church with you for your good, for your benefit, to help you in the midst of your trials, not not merely by patting you on the back, but yes, they'll do that also. By walking alongside of you in those trials, and pointing you back to the wisdom of God, helping you to understand it. You can, you, can, you have the, the ability to go to a pastor and ask, help, help me understand the revealed wisdom of God for me in this situation, or to an older Christian who has dealt with the same issue and say, can you help me understand what the word of God, the wisdom of God is for me in this situation? You can go to a parent, you can go to a grandparent, When you pray in faith and ask for God for wisdom in your trials, you will find that it's not how silly it was to ever doubt that that could happen. You're, You're surrounded by it. You're surrounded by the ability to access that wisdom. God has surrounded you with people of the book to help, to help us when we don't understand. If you really lack wisdom, and you come to God with faith and not doubting, if you come to him predisposed to submit to his word and whatever it teaches, I promise you, based on the authority of God's word, not mine, he will not fail to give you the wisdom you need to walk faithfully in whatever situation that you face in this life. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, so thankful for your word. And we come to you now, our giving God, 
rejoicing and, and so thankful in your character that you are constantly and only kind and merciful to us. Lord, that you loved us and, and you saved us in our weakness and even in our continued weakness as we still struggle with the battle that we saw in Romans 7 between the flesh and the spirit and some of these things like some of our trials they seem so difficult to be obedient in. We're so thankful that you not only give us the command that shows us the way, but you give us the strength and the wisdom to be obedient and to walk in that way. Lord God, I pray that you would help our church, help Grace Church, that we would really even more and more, be, be even more and more a people of the book, a people of true wisdom, that, that it would be, um, even as we think today about new members joining the church, we'd be reminded of our accountability, our commitment to each other, to, to not only walk through trials with one another, but to help each other, to help each other to, to understand better the wisdom of God that's available to us for every situation that we're in. And thank you, Father, for all that you're doing here in Grace Church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.